I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. I've titled this uh, message, The Worst Story Ever, or is it? Um, it's, a, it's a story, as we come to the end of Judges, there are these two accounts of Levites from Bethlehem who do horrible things that reveals this notion that was consistent through the period of the Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They're following after uh, the later French philosopher Rousseau, just saying, well, I'll do whatever pleases me at the moment. And we're seeing the consequences of that as we've made our way through this book, and it kind of comes to a um, pinnacle of pain in these last two stories. The, there is something inside me that wants to put a paper sack over my head as I preach this message because it's hard to look at. It's hard. But we must look at it. I believe that this text is here for us to see the sinfulness of sin that we might understand the great grace made known through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the theme that we're going to be looking at here today. Sin is really sinful. <laughs> God's plan to save us by King Jesus is really wonderful. Sin is really sinful. God's plan to save us by King Jesus is really wonderful. Let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, Judges chapter 19. We'll begin with verses 1 through 9, and then we'll make our way through the passage as we go. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Excuse me, in those days when there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him until he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day... He rose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Please be seated. Uh, we begin with some multiplied sins of family life that start our story of woe this morning. Here we have another Levite in Ephraim who's from Bethlehem, and he takes a concubine from Bethlehem. 
He does not marry, but rather takes a concubine instead. This reveals his self-centered use of the woman. She is property to him. That's all she is. And that's why our story begins with the familiar refrain, in those days when there was no king in Israel, this idea of everybody just doing what feels good to them at the time. There's no rules. Just live for yourself. Create your own reality. And this, a Levite who is, has a special calling from God to intercede on behalf of the people for, before the Lord. He's supposed to represent God but he seems to have only his own self in mind. The concubine, who is unnamed throughout this story, because by not using her name she can be objectified, that's kind of the whole idea here, made of no consequence. The concubine has a mind of her own. And so, in verse 2, we find out she is either unfaithful to him, or there's uh, actually another um, line of textual tradition that says she was angry with him. It's one of the two. Either she's unfaithful to him or becomes angry with him and leaves him. Uh, keep in mind, this is not a blame the victim deal here. She's going to end up being a victim in a horrible way. And this is not to blame her. This is not setting her up say, well, she got what she deserved. No, no, no. This is simply a statement of fact. Abused women do not always make the clearest decisions, and sometimes they can even make immoral ones. If we look in the Gospels, we would find, we would discover that Jesus appears to have great compassion for such women, Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, so forth. At any rate, this woman, this unnamed woman, goes back to her father's house. My guess is that she's looking for some protection because she has none where she is. And she stays there for four months. In verse 3, the Levite goes back to Bethlehem for the purpose of reconciliation. Notice it says to speak kindly to her. I wonder how he had spoken to her before. He's described in verse 3 as a husband here, but you need to think of that term loosely from the basis of just exactly what a concubine relationship is. He brings a servant with him and two donkeys, uh, probably one for her to ride as a way of saying, see how much I care for you. you know. She apparently is willing to entertain a return because she is the one who brings him into her father's house. Do you see that there in verse 3? He had with him his servant, a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. The father-in-law rejoices at the sight of the Levite. Why is that? Well, it is possible that the woman is hard to live with, and he wants to wash his hands of his daughter. People who have been harshly mistreated are often not easy to live with. Or perhaps he is simply happy at the possibility of reconciliation with the Levite. Perhaps he even hopes that they will marry instead of just living together in this concubine type of relationship. In verses 4 through 9, we have this strange to us 
story of hospitality, but it would not be strange to anyone who comes from the Middle East. This is the way of life among Middle Eastern folks in terms of hospitality. They're together for three days. On the fourth day, the Levite prepares to leave, but the father delays them. He tries to leave later in the day, but he's pressed to stay another night. They do that, planning to leave early in the morning on the fifth day. They get up, but the father urges them to stay past the heat of the day. They do this, and now the father presses them to stay yet another night. And by now, the Levite's ready to say, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. We've, had, we've done this. You might ask the question, why are these verses here? Why this going into detail of this part of the story? First, it is told like many times in the Old Testament where you have a story and then they actually repeat the story and then they repeat the story again. Have you ever run into that? Like Joseph's dream. There's several stories that get repeated. Uh, Daniel's visions. Um, and why do they do that? It builds literary tension. We're wondering what's going to happen. It's kind of the way in which the, the writer of the story is telling us to get into it, to focus pay attention to what's happening. We're being set up for something big about to happen. I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather used to tell me a story, and it went like this. It was a dark and stormy night in the mountains, and three mountaineers sat around the campfire telling stories to each other. One looked up from his intense gaze at the fire and said, Bill, why don't you tell us a story? And Bill said, all right, I will. And the story began. It was a dark and stormy night in the mountains. And three mountaineers sat around the campfire telling stories to each other. And one looked up from his intense gaze at the fire and said, Bill, why don't you tell us a story? And Bill said, all right, I will. And the story began. That's kind of the idea here, right? To build tension for us. It's also told because it's a contrast to the end of the story. What starts out here as a story of the hope of reconciliation ends in deep loss and evil, as we shall see shortly. And it is here to show that even evil, horrible evil, is not an accident to God. God is not surprised by evil. When evil things happen, God's not up in His heaven going, oh, I didn't realize that would happen. That doesn't make evil good, but often as we look back on evil, we can wonder, why? Oh, why did I take that job? Or why did I date that guy? Or why did I go to that school? And why did I spend the night there? This is a, fruitful in, uh, a fruitless endeavor, as we shall see. Instead, we should recognize that even in the most evil of evil places, God is there. He knows, and He will bring justice. It is not about looking back with regret, but looking ahead to God's great grace. Well, let's look at verses 10 through 21 now. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. 
And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. The selfish loss of community compounds our story of woe. Uh, This beautiful picture of hospitality in verses 4 through 9 is now contrasted by their journey where they go and receive very little in the form of hospitality, which demonstrates this selfish loss of community that compounds our story. The Levite finally enforces a departure from his concubine's father, but by now the day is far spent, and they get about six miles up the road to Jerusalem, and the servant says, well, hey, let's, uh, let's, pa- let's stop in at, uh, at, at Jebus, which is another name for Jerusalem, belonging to the Jebusites. By then, Uh, At that time, the Israelites had not conquered Jerusalem. It belonged to the Jebusites, which was a a tribe of Canaanites. And so, this Levite says, well, we're not going to stay in a city of foreigners, and on they go here. Um, If, in order for me to continue, I'm going to have to show you some maps. That's right. That's right. Uh, Everybody's cheering. Last Sunday night, one of the... uh, teens that told their uh, testimony at uh, the Senior Saints Banquet, and the teens did a great job of uh, encouraging our Senior Saints last Sunday night. Thanks to Pastor Walt and the team there for that. But one of the teens introduced themselves by saying, uh, hi, my name's Trent. I have, some, I have a map to show you. So I thought that was clever. Um, so what this, what this is, is uh, here's Bethlehem. And here's Jerusalem, and here's Gibeah. Along the spine of the hill country, it's called the Highway of the Patriarchs. It's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all walked on this spine. And here you can see the four names that are listed in this text, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Gibeah, and Ramah. He's hoping that as they go, they come by here, and the servant says, well, hey, let's just stop here. He goes, we're not going to stay in these foreigners. Let's go on. And by now, it's getting darker and darker, and so they don't make it all the way to Ramah. Instead, they make it to Gibeah here. Uh, This is just another picture that gives us closer from Bethlehem to Jebus to Gibeah. Um, And here is Gibeah, uh, and you can see how it's on the spine of the hill country, so the, the way of the patriarchs goes right 
here, you know, along the ridge. You walk on ridges in the hill country. And I don't know if you can make out the very top of the hill here. This is a little bit of a modern story. Um, in 1967, King Hussein of Jordan was building a palace there. And it's visible from a long ways off because it looks like a biplane, you know, so you can always see the site of Gibeah uh, from all around because of this big building that's up on top that's obviously stopped construction at, uh, after the Six-Day War. So, anyway. Uh, the servant who's traveling on foot, verse 11, so he's jumping at the first chance to rest, suggests that they spend the night in Jebus. The Levite, however, aware that the city's still controlled by the Canaanites, godless Canaanites, uh, or idolatrous Canaanites, says that there's no community for them in that city. They're foreigners who don't belong to the people of Israel. Instead, he suggests that they move on to one of the next two big towns, Gibeah or Ramah. It's a bit of a sacrifice to do that, being as it's not an easy hike and the hour is getting late. But it's a commitment of the Levite, at least in dim-lighted principle, not to join in with the Canaanites. The fact that he has a concubine does not in the slightest seem like an inconsistency to him, which is how it is with all legalists, right? Their own sin doesn't look very bad, but the sins of others are horrible. No, I won't taint myself by going into a town of the Canaanites as he walks with his concubine. This is far too frequent among those who say that they love the Lord, isn't it? Indignant about some sin, but not others, the ones that they're doing do not seem nearly as wicked. They separate from some sins, but not from the ones that they themselves do. And so the accusation of hypocrisy, indeed in many cases, is a fair one. They don't get to Ramah in verse 14. The sun sets on them as just as they're getting to Gibeah. Their hand forced by the darkness, they go into Gibeah, probably making it within the hour before the gates are closed for the night. But there's a problem. Among their own people, this party of three is invisible. No one took them in. Everyone is too busy doing what is right in his own eyes to lift up their eyes enough to see a human need and meet it. Finally, just as the gate is closing for the night, an old man hobbles into town from his work in the field. He's not from these parts. He's from Ephraim, further north. But he was living for a while in Gibeah, a place that belongs to Benjamin, according to verse 16. It says, he was sojourning in Gibeah, and there should be a word but here, but the men of the place were Benjaminites. There's a contrast there in the Hebrew text. This is going to be important in future chapters, uh, uh, Judges 20 and 21, to know that this is Benjamin. Uh, this is where the problem originates that leads to a civil war. Uh, verses 17 through 19, the old man observes the three travelers and he inquires of them, and they answer his questions. It's a point of connection that they're returning to the homeland of the old man. They said, we're going to Ephraim. He's going, Ephraim, I'm from Ephraim, right? There's a, a point of connection there. The destination that's described is interesting. It says in verse uh, 18, the Levite says, I am going to the house of the Lord. 
That's interesting. Is he serving at the tabernacle in Shiloh, farther north? I think it might be. Here this guy is serving at the house of the Lord, and he's got all this going on in his life. He wants the old man to know, I've got provisions for myself. We've got straw and feed for the donkeys, bread and wine. We, we don't lack anything. We just need a place for the night. The old man gives hospitality even beyond that, right? He says, I'll care for your wants. Just don't spend the night in the square. Why does the old man say that? He knows the danger of spending the night in this square. So now we come to the rotten sin of abuse and violence that seals the woe of pain and judgment. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Everybody's gotten settled in. They're enjoying a comfortable evening together. And as in most crime, it comes upon this group of four suddenly. The men of the place are Benjaminites, men of the city, worthless fellows, this phrase translated worthless fellows is literally sons of Belial. There's a spiritual darkness here. They come beating on the door, having surrounded the house. They demand that the man that the old man is supplying they, they demand the man that the old man is supplying hospitality to. They don't know this Levite, but they want to abuse him in the most horrible way as possible. And now a sickening negotiation takes place. The old man bravely goes out to talk to these ruffians. The episode will remind us of Genesis 19, where a very similar thing happens to the visiting angels at Sodom and how Lot tried to bargain his own daughters away. The old man's argument is, don't do this wickedness. He calls it a vile thing. And the reason not because it's vile and wicked, but because it would fracture the deeply held view of hospitality. I'm, I'm showing hospitality. Don't do this because of my hospitality. That apparently is not satisfactory. So the old man offers an alternative to the intended wickedness of the Benjaminite men. I have a virgin daughter. The Levite has a concubine. How about you take them for your evil purpose? I'll make it available e immediately. Let me bring them out now. Do whatever you want with them. Here, doing what is right in your own eyes comes home to roost, doesn't it? All he is after is please leave the Levite alone. At this point, the Levite takes action because the Benjaminite men are getting worked up. And in verse 25, as the men not listening to him, the Levite grabs his concubine 
and makes her go out the door onto the street. Can you imagine? Here was a young lady who had already left this guy to go home to her dad. There was this phony reconciliation, and not even 24 hours have passed. And now the Levite uses her as an object to be given away and abused. The abuse lasts from evening all into the night to the morning, and just at dawn they let her go. She stumbles her way back to the house and falls down at the door of the house, laying there unattended until it is light. Verses 27 to 30, her master rose up in the morning when he opened the doors of the house, went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel, and all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The Levite, now called her master, gets up in the morning. He makes no inquiry. Instead, he gets ready for his trip. And when he's ready to go, he leaves the house and there finds the woman lying at the door with her hands just at the threshold of the house. It's like she's just trying to make it back and she makes it right to the doorway. He tells her, get up, let's get going. She's an object to him. Just like a man on a trip, by the way, focused. Anybody ever traveled with your husband and thought, man, it would be great to have a bathroom break once in a while. He's just focused on his thing of getting home, right? He may have even kicked her as he issued the commands. That's how I imagine it. Come on, let's go. We're getting out of here. Time to leave. I'm late. No sound comes from her. Literally, it says, no one answered. She's dead. He puts her body on the donkey and goes home. When he gets home, verse 29, <clears throat> it says he, he entered his house. Now, I'm going to wonder, because it says he's going in verse 18 to the house of the Lord. Enters his house. Is this the compound where the tabernacle is? He enters his house, and a Levite is practiced in the uh, ritual of offering sacrifices, cutting them up and laying them on the altar. But instead of doing that, he cuts up the concubine and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. Instead of offering sacrifices, he cuts up the girl and ships her body parts to each of the tribes. He does this in order to say, I need justice. What a horrible way to communicate that, isn't it? He's doing what is right in his own eyes. The reaction in Israel, nothing like this has ever happened. 
It's a wake-up call to the nation. Things are really, really bad. That's our story. Let's think about what it means. What kind of a story is this? It's a story of the abuse of women. The Bible is unafraid to depict in the starkest terms the awful sin of violent and sexual abuse. It's not afraid to tell that story. Are there women in our church in that situation? It's far more common throughout human history, even among people who say that they know the Lord, than we want to acknowledge. That's one way that people do what is right in their own eyes, and the author of Judges clearly wants us to see how great a sin this is against this defenseless, nameless woman, and it carries the compound interest of nearly destroying an entire nation and inaugurates a civil war, as we will see in the next two weeks. There are two undeniable facts of the universe. One of them is that people are utterly depraved, corrupt in mind and body, and are hopelessly lost. And that's not just confined to the worthless men of Belial from Gibeah. This is true of all of us. We should never be surprised when we find out that someone has sinned, ever. It's also not just a story of abuse. It's a story of the degradation of the sin of individual autonomy. As goes the family, so goes the nation. Everyone in this story is nameless. Did you notice that? Everybody's nameless. Why? To show that it's about all of us. To reveal the depersonalizing nature of sin. Community, family, caring, hospitality are all emptied of their meaning when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This makes Philippians 2 all the more amazing that God would send Jesus into this mess. <laughs> it is, in fact, Jesus and His kingdom that bring us true community, family, caring, and hospitality as Daniel Block, commentator on Judges, says. It's also a story of hospitality gone wrong. You know, in the culture here, hospitality was a huge value, and it just shows how this can just spin out of control when we let sin get a hold of us. It's a story that sets us up for the fact that there's great tribal disunity. The emphasis on Benjamin here is not uh, is purposeful to say one tribe has kind of gone its own way, and it's going to describe how uh, Benjamin uh, nearly gets wiped out in a civil war in the next couple of weeks as a result, and, and the need for a uniting king. Now, the people of Israel are going to think that they know better than God about getting a king, and so what do they do? They say to Samuel a little later after the period of the judges is over, they say, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations around us have. And Samuel says, no, you should have the Lord as your king. And they say, no, we want a king who will go out and fight for us. And so the Lord tells Samuel, 
It's time to give them what they want. And so they do this process by which the king is identified, and they take, and the lot that, of where the king's going to come from goes to Benjamin. And everybody remembers all that's happening right here in Judges 19 goes, oh. And then the lot goes to beyond Benjamin to the town of Gibeah, where this very story took place. That's where King Saul comes from. That's his hometown. God says, you want a king in your own image, going your own way? I'll give you one. It's a story of tribal disunity and the need for a king. It's a story of how failure to worship in chapter 18 rightly brings all things to an evil end and how kingdom building for oneself is a dead end. I asked you last week, or I mentioned to you last week, that it was my belief that the sin of the Levite in chapters 17 and 18 is worse than the sin that happens in 19. And we might say, well, I don't know that you could say one sin's worse than the other. That's probably true. But most of us are horrified by what we hear and what we read in chapter 19, but we're not horrified by 18, where the Levite develops his own sickening cult worship center with his metal image and graven image and calls it the Lord and consults and thinks he's consulting God. You see, if we violate the first command of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will violate the second one, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And these are in the order they are in here in order to teach us that the failure to worship brings everything to an evil end, and kingdom building for yourself is a dead end. Which is the worst sin, this week's or last week's? From the standpoint of origin, I believe it is last week's. One commentator of our text today says, this the first story is in the ground-level appendix to Judges, and it was slightly comical while also fairly tragic. Having read it, we're unprepared for and stunned by the violence in this second story, which is very dark and unremittingly tragic. It goes far beyond anything we've read already. By modern standards, it's deeply repulsive. And it was by ancient Israelite standards too. Going down in Israel's history is an episode of great shame. Uh, Hosea actually mentions it in Hosea 9 and 10. I disagree with that sentiment saying that the first story is comical and the second one is dark. I want to say that we started with blackness, darkness, and we're just seeing it played out here in chapter 19. The last thing that I want to share with you of what this story is, is it's a story of a messed up world, a broken world, a world that cannot save itself, no matter how much we want to live for ourselves and think that we can craft our own reality, it leads to utter disaster. Sin is really sinful. And in the process of going our way, the best we can hope for is a messed up King Saul from Gibeah, the story where that all messed up. 
But remember the second half of what I told you where we were headed today? Sin is really sinful. God's plan to save us by King Jesus is really wonderful. These two last stories in Judges, did you know that they're both Levites? But did you notice also that they are both Levites from the town of Bethlehem in Judah? And so what we are, what we are called upon to think of is this is a place of horror. This is a place of unbelievable degradation and sin. This is a place that is impossible to fix. Nothing good can come from there. It's absolutely despised. It's awful. And yet, right after this story, we are introduced in the book of Ruth with these words. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And we've been through that story as a church, haven't we? Where this terrible things happen to this family, they all end up dying except for Naomi and, a, and, and her two daughters-in-law, the two daughters-in-law who are Moabite women. Uh, one of them ends up joining Naomi, going back to Bethlehem. Uh, the one daughter-in-law, Ruth, ends up marrying a man of Bethlehem, Boaz, who becomes, Boaz and Ruth become the um, great-grandparents of King David. And from David comes the Messiah, Jesus. From this sickening story in chapter 19, relating to Bethlehem, the sickening story in chapter 18, coming from Bethlehem, we have this remarkable story about Bethlehem that leads to King David, which we end up reading in the prophet Micah these words, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's impossible. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Have this mind in you, it's also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in the form of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning, friends, as we look with horror on this text, let us look with horror at our own sin. And then let us look with great joy at the one who forgives us, who hung there on that cross, that we may be forgiven, and that every injustice, in some way that we do not yet know how He will do it, that every injustice will be righted. I'd like to ask the worship team if they'd come up right now. 
And we're going to sing that song that we sang right before the message, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. It's a song that was written, by the way, in, here in central Illinois. A Presbyterian Sunday school teacher in Peoria wrote this song. And I want you to pay special attention to uh, the words of uh, all the words, but especially to this one. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. The Bible doesn't try to hide sin, the sinfulness of sin. What can avail to wash it away? How could we possibly fix this? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide that's saying the blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. Whiter than snow you may be today. Heavenly Father, as we sing this song, if there are those who are still have not received this blessing of forgiveness for sin through faith in Jesus, I pray that you would help them to faith right now. Help them to say honestly the darkness, the sinfulness of their sin, that they want to turn away from that and run to the cross of Christ. And I pray that they would experience this new life that you promise us. For those of us who have put our faith and hope in Jesus, Lord, help us never to be hypocritical, looking down our nose at someone else's sin while not thinking well about our own. And may we keep in close fellowship with our Savior, confessing our sins to Him, inviting Him to do His work of grace in our lives. But more than anything, Lord, Help us to embrace, to herald, and to sing the wonderful truth that though sin is utterly sinful, your plan to save us by King Jesus is wonderful beyond our imagination. Through Christ we pray. Amen.